Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History, it's your host Joe. I'll try to get to the episode as quickly as I can, but as always, please subscribe to the podcast, rate us five stars, and give us a review on whatever app that you use, and please like the Facebook page, Excuse Me History, which I'll link to in the episode description. I always try to post maps and some supplemental information to help follow along with the episode. Also, you might have noticed that in the last couple of episodes that ads have started to play. Uh, I got an offer to do an ad read. It's just a way for me to make a little extra money from the podcast so that I can buy books and stuff. But I'll try to keep the ads to a minimum and put them in places in the episodes where they're not super intrusive. Alright folks, without further ado, let's start the show. Major John Harmon's vast wagon train winded its way through Monterey Pass en route to Williamsport, the mood amongst the Confederate Army still at Gettysburg ranged from depressed to angry. In a letter to his wife written later in the summer, Private John C. West of the 4th Texas Infantry recalled his Independence Day experience. Quote, And such another fourth I never expect to spend. We had no meat and very little bread for two days, had not taken off our accoutrements during the time, and the rain poured incessantly so that the water on the level plain was two or three inches deep. Many within the rebel army hoped, even expected, me to attack. Colonel Porter Alexander wrote after the war, As it was the 4th of July, there was an idea that Meade would be inspired to try and win a real victory. We found a good line and occupied it, but Meade did not come. Some southern soldiers were disappointed that the Yankees did not give them the chance to repay them for the repulse of Pickett's charge, while others were just content to rest. Private John S. Tucker of the 5th Alabama Infantry had been wounded during the battle and was one of many soldiers in the army that had lost a close comrade. His brother Tooney had been killed in the fight on the 1st. He recorded in his diary, quote, I feel perfectly indifferent as to the result. All that was ever dear to me in this army is gone, and I care not what the result is. Unquote. It wasn't until late on the afternoon of July 4th that General John and Bowden's wagon train began its march out of Gettysburg on the Chambersburg Pike. Major Harmon's trains had more than a 12-hour head start on Bowden. The cavalry general remembered the scene. Quote, Shortly after noon of the 4th, the very windows of heaven seemed to have opened. Rain fell in blinding sheets. The meadows were soon overflowed and fences gave way before the raging streams. During the storm, wagons, ambulances, and artillery carriages by hundreds, by thousands, were assembling in the field along the road from Gettysburg to Cashtown, in one confused, arid, apparently inextricable mass. As the afternoon wore on, there was no abatement in the storm. Canvas was no protection against its fury, and the wounded men lying upon the naked boards of the wagon bodies were drenched. Horses and mules were blinded and maddened by the wind and water and became almost unmanageable. The deafening roar, the mingled sounds of heaven and earth all around us made it almost impossible to communicate orders and equally difficult to execute them. About 4 p.m., the head of the column was put in motion near Cashtown and began the ascent of the mountain in the direction of Chambersburg. I remained at Cashtown giving directions and putting in detachments of guns and troops at what I estimated to be intervals of a quarter or a third of a mile. It was found from the position of the head of the column west of the mountain at dawn of the 5th, the hour at which Young's cavalry and Hart's battery began tile ascent of the mountain near Cashtown, that the entire column was 17 miles long when drawn out on the road and put in motion." Imboden's wagon procession was assigned the longer, more indirect route to Williamsport. They would march westward along the Chambersburg Pike through the Cashtown Gap to the small village of Greenwood. Instead of continuing on to Chambersburg, they would turn southeast at New Guilford in the direction of Marion. From there, they'd head southward through Greencastle, Pennsylvania, cross the Maryland border, then head through Hagerstown and finally Williamsport. It would be a journey of nearly 50 miles. Imboden's brigade was given the unenviable task of protecting the 15 to 20 mile long wagon train from Union cavalry. General Fitzhugh Lee and Colonel Lawrence Baker's cavalry brigades would follow the train, protecting its rear along with the Army's flank during the retreat. 
One way to emphasize the enormous length of the wagon train was the story of Private J.W. Loki of the 22nd Georgia, who'd been wounded in the leg on July 2nd. The ambulance ride caused him so much pain that he begged to be let out when they stopped in New Franklin. He got out and fell asleep by the side of the road. When he awoke many hours later on the morning of the 5th, the wagon train was still passing through New Franklin. He managed to hitch a ride in an ambulance of the 11th Virginia Cavalry and continued with the procession. It was a miserable journey for all involved. It rained on and off for the entire trip. The only positive was that at least for the first leg of the march, they were on the macadamized Chambersburg Pike. The layers of crushed stone allowed the wagons to steadily roll along without fear of getting stuck in the mud. By the time the column reached Cashtown Gap, it was getting late on the 4th. A wounded North Carolina soldier traveling in one of the ambulances recalled, quote, When we reached the top of the mountain, it got very dark, but there was no halt made, steady trot being kept up all night. I could never tell how we got along without some accident. During the night, we passed Thad Stevens' ironworks, which Ewell's troops had burned as they passed on some days before, and they were still smoking, unquote. The major drawback of the macadamized road was the toll it took on the footwear of the soldiers and horses. Private Napier Bartlett, a gunner in the Washington artillery who accompanied the train, wrote, quote, Over the pine stump road, some of us had to march barefooted, our shoes having been destroyed by the rough macadamized Chambersburg pike, or the heavy mud, and those who were especially sufferers, whose feet, my own among the numbers, were inconveniently larger than those of the passing Dutchmen, whom we could meet on the road. The men and officers on horseback would go to sleep without knowing it, and at one time there was a halt occasioned by all of the drivers, or at least those whose business was to attend to it, being asleep in their saddles. In fact, the whole of the army was dozing while marching, and moved as if under enchantment or spell, were asleep, and at the same time walking." Unquote. On they marched through the rain and darkness. General Imboden remained at Cashtown for most of the evening until after sunset, he then rode his horse to reach the head of the column. Years later, he recalled, quote, My orders had been preemptory, that there should be no halt for any cause whatever. If an accident should happen to any vehicle, it was immediately to be put out of the road and abandoned. The column moved rapidly, considering the rough roads and the darkness, and from almost every wagon for many miles issued heart-rending wails of agony. For four hours, I hurried forward on my way to the front, and in all that time, I was never out of the hearing of groans and cries of the wounded and dying. Scarcely one in a hundred had received adequate surgical aid, owing to the demands on the hard-working surgeons, from still worse eases that had to be left behind. Many of the wounded in the wagons had been without food for 36 hours. Their torn and bloody clothing, matted and hardened, was rasping the tender, inflamed and still oozing wounds. Very few of the wagons had even a layer of straw in them, and all were without springs. The road was rough and rocky from the heavy washings of the preceding day. The jolting was enough to have killed strong men. From nearly every wagon as the teams trotted on, urged by whip and shout, came such cries and shrieks as these, Oh God, why can't I die? My God, will no one have mercy and kill me? Stop! Oh, for God's sake, stop just for one minute! Take me out and leave me to die on the roadside. I am dying. I am dying. My poor wife. My dear children. What will become of you? Some were simply moaning, some were praying, and others uttering the most fearful oaths and execrations that despair and agony could wring from them, while a majority, with a stoicism sustained by sublime devotion to the cause they fought for, endured without complaint unspeakable tortures and even spoke with cheer and comfort to their unhappy comrades of less will or more acute nerves. Occasionally, a wagon would be passed from which only low, deep moans could be heard. No help could be rendered to any of the sufferers. No heed could be given to any of their appeals. Mercy and duty to many forbade the loss of a moment in the vain effort then and there to comply with the prayers of the few. On, on we must move. The storm continued, and the darkness was appalling. There was no time even to fill a canteen with water for a dying man, for except the drivers and the guards, all were wounded and utterly helpless in that vast procession of misery. During this one night, I realized more of the horrors of war than I had in all the two preceding years. Unquote. Emphasizing Imboden's last sentence, Private W.A. Popkins of the 18th Virginia Cavalry of Imboden's Brigade reminisced after the war that, quote, of all the nights I spent during the war, I think this was the saddest. 
We were already sad and disheartened by our misfortune, and this mental condition was made worse by the thunder and lightning and great torrents of rain which came down, augmented by the horrible groans of the wounded and dying." Unquote. The rain and darkness gave many, including rebel deserters, enslaved black men, and captured Yankees, the opportunity to ditch the retreating column. Hundreds of men slipped away into the countryside between Gettysburg and the Potomac. The rainy night also confused the Teamsters. A group of about a dozen ambulance wagons took the wrong path when they reached a fork in the road, and instead of heading southward, they continued on to Chambersburg. As they approached the town, the lead Teamster realized that something was amiss. He'd come up with the army through Williamsport back in June and did not recognize the buildings or the terrain. He halted their convoy until they could figure out what was going on. A man on horseback rode up and asked him, quote, Why don't you drive on? The teamster replied, We are on the wrong road. This is not Williamsport. The strange man assured him, Tis Williamsport. Only drive on. The Yankees are just behind us. Gesturing toward the German Reformed Church, the teamster stated, Williamsport has no church steeple like that. The man on horseback would not relent. I tell you, this is Williamsport. Don't you know that just down there in that hollow is the canal and river? Drive on as fast as you can, and after you are across the river, you can take all the time you want. Unquote. Just then, another rider approached the head of the train and echoed the first man's claims. Quote, that looks more like the right way down there in that hollow or the canal and river. Unquote. The situation was becoming ominous for the Confederates as more people approached their wagon train. They had no choice but to proceed into Chambersburg. Armed citizens surrounded the ambulances, and the men were all taken prisoner. Most were wounded soldiers. Jacob Brand, a resident of Chambersburg, went up to the captured convoy and saw a large man exit one of the ambulances. He learned he was a member of the Texas Brigade, and his arm had been amputated the day before. Brand asked the Texan, quote, What does this mean? To which he replied, It means that Uncle Robert has got a hell of a weapon. Unquote. The wounded were removed from the ambulances and taken to various buildings in Chambersburg to be treated until they could be transported to Union prisons. Confederate soldiers and Pennsylvania residents would continue to have interesting run-ins as Imboden's wagon train moved through the Cumberland Valley. Jacob Snyder, a farmer who lived near the small community of New Franklin, was awoken late that night and later recounted his memories. Quote, about 10 or 11 o'clock on the night of Saturday, July 4th, 1863, we heard a great noise of horses' feet clattering and tramping along the road. It was at first supposed that another detachment was passing to Gettysburg. After a little, the rumbling of wagons was heard. I at once arose, struck a light, opened the door, and went out, and in less than 15 minutes the large hall of my house and the yard in front were filled with wounded Confederate soldiers. They had once set up the clamor to my wife and other members of my family. Water, water, give us water. They also begged to have their wounds dressed. Oh, what a sight. I at once came to the conclusion that something unusual had taken place, and as the rain was falling in torrents, I put on my overcoat and walked out to the barnyard at the roadside with a staff in my hand. I there found that some cavalrymen were driving part of my young cattle out of my barnyard. I walked up to the gate and closed it to prevent any more from being driven out. The officer in charge, sitting on his horse and seeing the staff I carried, supposed it to be a gun and at once rode away. At about 1 o'clock a.m., a man with a short leg rode up to the yard gate in company with five or six others. He very politely asked Mrs. Snyder for a drink of water. He seemed to be strapped to his horse. When riding away, one of the men said he was General Yule. I afterward learned that his amputated limb had gotten sore. The long-wished-for daylight at length dawned, and revealed to the farmers along the road that their fences were torn down, and that ambulances and wagons, together with hundreds of cavalry, were making a way through their fields, and that their wheat, corn, and grass were being ruined. The narrow road in many places was so badly cut up that the wagons could scarcely get on, and many had to take the fields. Broken-down wagons and caissons, yet containing large amounts of ammunition, were strewn out all along the route. Oh, what a sight! The groans of the wounded and shrieks of the dying beggar description. I said to several of the men, Major Throckmorton and others who had been at my house on their way to Gettysburg, What does this mean? I think you have received a terrible whipping. They replied that they were only going back to get more ammunition and would return and clean out the Yankees. I then said, Looks to me as if the Yankees had completely cleaned you out, and I think, and I presume you think so yourselves, that you had better have stayed at home and remained under the old flag. Unquote. 
One thing to note was that the officer with the missing leg was not General Richard Ewell. He was still near Gettysburg at the time. Despite the fact that the Confederates had passed through the area on the march northward, foraging for supplies on their way, they continued to comb through the farms and towns for livestock, food, and other supplies. The citizens of the Cumberland Valley, emboldened by the Union victory, were more quick to stand up to defend their property during the rebels' retreat. After Imboden's column left the macadamized Chambersburg Pike, it was forced to take dirt roads, which were quickly becoming impassable as the rains turned the dirt to mud. As Jacob Snyder mentioned, many of the soldiers turned off the roads to march through fields in order to avoid getting sucked into the mud, ruining the crops in the process. While Imboden's trains made their way down the Cumberland Valley, the lead wagons of Major John Harmon's Army Reserve train started to arrive at Williamsport around midnight on the 5th. The situation at the proposed crossing site quickly descended into chaos. Some wagons managed to cross the river at the fords near the town, but the continuous rainfall caused the Potomac to rise to depths as much as 13 feet, several times higher than its typical depth. By the end of July 5th, the Potomac was unfordable at Williamsport. When it was discovered that the pontoon bridge at Falling Waters was kaput, hundreds of wagons congregated at Williamsport, unsure of what to do next. Until the waters fell to a low enough level that soldiers and wagons could cross at Light's Ford, the only way to cross the river was using Lehman's Ferry. Robert Lehman had purchased the ferry landing site in 1854, and ever since had operated a flat boat that crossed the Potomac with a cable that spanned the river. The boat was only capable of ferrying two wagons, or 40 men at one time, so the scene at Williamsport became desperate. Major Harmon struggled to keep order as Teamsters fought over who would be allowed to cross first. It was only when General Grumble Jones arrived from Monterey Pass that things calmed down. Jones recorded in his campaign report, quote, My staff and all my couriers having gotten separated from me, and the enemy having the road in my front, I made through the fields and byways for Williamsport to escape or be useful as occasion might require. Arriving early in the morning, all was found in confusion. Everyone was anxious to cross the river, too much swell into Ford, and the only boat available could not exceed 70 trips in 24 hours. To deprive all of the hope of what but a small fraction could attain was deemed the most expedient means of establishing order. I assumed command and put 15 or 20 infantry, the only organized men I could see, to guard the boat and stop the crossing." Unquote. Jones was able to somewhat restore order at Williamsport, but the Confederates would need to quickly come up with a better solution. If water levels did not fall quickly, they would likely be trapped on the Maryland side of the river and potentially be forced into fighting another battle with the Army of the Potomac, this time with their backs to the wall. Also, one additional thing to note is that Lee had ordered up reserve ammunition trains to come down the Shenandoah Valley to Williamsport earlier on the campaign. He mentioned this to Imboden during their early morning meeting on the 4th. The ordnance wagons arrived on the opposite side of the river on the afternoon of the 5th. While supplies and wounded soldiers were ferried to the Virginia side, ammunition would be loaded onto the empty flatboats on the return trip. Some reinforcements sent from Richmond would also arrive on the south bank of the Potomac and would be brought over to defend Williamsport, but I'll talk about that more later. Back in Gettysburg, the main body of the Army of Northern Virginia was gearing up to evacuate their defensive works on the evening of the 4th. About 5 p.m., not long after General Imboden's 17-mile-long wagon train headed down the Chambersburg Pike, Lieutenant General Ambrose Powell Hill's 3rd Corps, which held the center of the Rebel Line along Seminary Ridge, was ordered to march down the Fairfield Road toward Monterey Pass. General Rand's Wright's Brigade of Anderson's division would lead the column. The thunderstorm was both an advantage and a hindrance. The low visibility prevented Union Signal Corps men from easily spotting the withdrawal of the Confederate infantry, but the poor conditions caused significant delays in the march. The soldiers of Hill's Corps slogged through the muddy roads between Gettysburg and Fairfield. It took Anderson's division six hours to move eight miles. Because of this, Longstreet's 1st Corps, which was chosen to follow Hill, could not get started until midnight on July 5th. As Hill's infantry and artillery left their positions, the remaining soldiers built large fires that created a smokescreen all along their lines that further hindered the vision of the Yankee signal stations. Nevertheless, throughout the evening of the 4th, the Signal Corps sent reports to Army headquarters. 
Around 5 p.m., Lieutenant P.A. Taylor, from his vantage point at Gettysburg's courthouse, alerted the Union High Command that, quote, three regiments of cavalry and four wagons passed along our front two and a half miles from town, halted on the hills northwest from the college building, and were joined by two more regiments, a battery of artillery, and two ambulances coming from behind the hills. The column is now moving toward the Chambersburg Road. Dense smoke has been seen all day behind the hills in the direction of Cashtown, unquote. Not long after, Taylor sent another message, quote, A train of 33 wagons just passed from near Harris Tavern toward the Fairfield Road. Several smaller trains have been seen during the day in the same direction. The column of cavalry reported this PM moving toward Chambersburg Pike, halted behind the woods north of the seminary, head of column rising on the Tapeworm Road. It is still there at this hour, horses grazing, unquote. While these reports suggested that Lee was retreating, there wasn't anything conclusive enough to assure George Meade that this was in fact the case. Besides the removal of some wagons and cavalry, the Confederate Army was still there on the night of the 4th. That night, Meade called his corps commanders to his headquarters for a meeting of the mines. This was Meade's second council of war since they'd arrived at Gettysburg, though he preferred to call it a consultation. Whatever you want to call it, the high command of the Army of the Potomac met to discuss their opinions on what they should do next. General Dan Butterfield later testified that these questions were asked and debated. Quote, shall the Army remain here? If we remain here, shall we assume the offensive? Do you deem it expedient to move towards Williamsport through Emmitsburg? Shall we pursue the enemy if he has retreated on his direct line of retreat? Unquote. Butterfield revealed that the majority of those present at the consultation voted to remain in Gettysburg for 24 hours. Those who were in favor of staying were Generals William Hayes, David Burney, George Sykes, John Sedgwick, and Governor Warren. Generals John Newton, Henry Slocum, and Alfred Pleasanton voted to move. General Oliver Howard was undecided and abstained from voting. Also, before I move on, I want to mention a new Corps commander, Brigadier General William Hayes. When Generals Winfield Hancock and John Gibbon were wounded on the 3rd, General John Caldwell assumed command of the 2nd Corps, based on seniority, but not long after, Meade replaced him with Hayes. The 44-year-old William Hayes was a native of Richmond, Virginia, and had grown up in Nashville, Tennessee. He was a West Point Class of 1840 graduate and a career artillery officer. He fought in both the Mexican and the Seminole Wars. For most of the Civil War, he continued on as an artillery officer, until early 1863 when he was promoted to Brigadier General of Volunteers and assigned a brigade, which he led at the Battle of Chancellorsville, where he was wounded and captured. Exchanged shortly after the battle, he returned to the Army of the Potomac without a command when the Gettysburg Campaign began, possibly due to Caldwell's alleged mismanagement of his division during the July 2nd battle, Meade named Hayes as Temporary Corps Commander. So the July 4th Council of War showed that Meade's inclination to remain in Gettysburg for the present was the shared consensus, though it was not unanimous. Clearly, there were those who believed that they should act more aggressively and get the jump of the Confederates. Meade once again used the majority opinion to back up his own determination. The army would remain in Gettysburg and rest for the time being. When Lee's intentions were clear, then they would move to block the rebel retreat. As to the other questions relating to the route they should take in pursuit of Lee, we don't know exactly how everyone answered, but it's likely that the majority favored moving on a parallel course with Lee, as opposed to following him directly. So the Yankees settled in for the night, while the Confederates were in the process of retreating. It was slow going for the Army of Northern Virginia. Thus far, they'd mostly escaped detection, but it wasn't until midnight that Longstreet's Corps left their breastworks and began their march. Ewell's Corps wouldn't get on the move until later on the morning of the 5th. Time was not on the side of the Confederate Army. Sometime around 3 a.m., rebel deserters came upon Union lines with the intention of surrendering. From these captured deserters came more information about the withdrawal. Then at 5.40 a.m., Meade finally received the news he'd been waiting to hear from Captain James Hall at the courthouse signal station. Quote, the enemy have evacuated the position they held yesterday. No indications of the enemy anywhere, only on the Chambersburg Road and in small force. Their batteries have disappeared from the hills near the seminary. Prisoners report that the enemy has gone to Hagerstown. Unquote. Shortly after, a second message from the signal station at Little Round Top confirmed the earlier report. Quote, Though the atmosphere is smoky, yet many of the points which yesterday composed the enemy's front and reserve lines can be distinctly seen. 
At these points, not a single object can be seen moving on either line, which leads to the belief that the enemy have left our front, unquote. After receiving this news, Meade went to work determining the best course of action for the army. Early in the morning, General John Sedgwick was ordered to advance toward the Confederate lines. His corps marched westward toward Ewell's corps, which had moved out closer to the Fairfield Road, but had yet to get on the move. Both sides held their ground after a brief exchange of artillery rounds. Meade's chief of staff, General Dan Butterfield, had been wounded during the July 3rd cannonade. Though he stayed on the day before, he was not considered well enough to continue, and Meade decided to make a replacement. It also gave him a convenient excuse to rid himself of Butterfield, who remained a loyal partisan of Joe Hooker. He named Generals Governor Warren and Alfred Pleasanton his temporary co-chiefs until he could find a suitable long-term replacement. At 8.30 a.m., he sent a message to Halleck that read, quote, The enemy is retired, under cover of the night and heavy rain, the direction of Fairfield and Cashtown. All my available cavalry are in pursuit on the enemy's left and rear. My movement will be made at once on his flank via Middletown and South Mountain Pass, unquote. So already by the morning of the 5th, Meade had decided upon his route of pursuit. Using multiple roads, the Army of the Potomac would march from Gettysburg to Middletown, Maryland. From there, they could cross South Mountain and possibly get to Williamsport before Lee. This was the right move. Meade essentially had two choices, follow Lee's path directly or on a parallel course. Civil War armies in retreat generally had the advantage against an enemy army in direct pursuit. The rear guard of the army could wage delaying actions against the pursuer, allowing the main body time to put distance between themselves and the foe. This would be particularly effective if Lee's rear guard were to fortify Monterey Pass. A small rear guard could hold off a force many times larger than itself indefinitely. Taking a parallel path southward was Meade's best option, but that presented a different set of problems. Primarily that the Federals would have to take the longer, more circuitous route to reach the planned crossing point. Lee's main body, traveling from Seminary Ridge through Monterey Pass and onto Williamsport, would have roughly 40 miles to traverse. Depending on the particular route assigned, the distance from Gettysburg to Middletown, the proposed point of concentration, would be about 40 to 45 miles. From Middletown to Williamsport, you're talking about another 25 miles. If the Union Army was going to have any chance at cutting off Lee's route of escape or catching his army in the air, then they would have to act fast. The Confederates already had a head start and an inside track. A significant delay of any kind would be too much for the Federals to overcome. One man who urged me to move with all possible speed was Brigadier General Herman Haupt. Haupt was a 46-year-old Philadelphian. He'd received an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy at the age of 14 from President Andrew Jackson and graduated 29th in the class of 1835. He finished 10 spots behind none other than George Gordon Meade. Haupt's military career only lasted a year, after which he left the Army for civilian life. Like many West Pointers, he became an engineer, working in the railroads and bridge construction for most of his antebellum days. Interestingly enough, he did live in Gettysburg for a time. He was married there in 1838 and worked as a professor at Pennsylvania College for most of the 1840s before returning to railroad engineering. When the Civil War broke out, he was initially reluctant to offer his services to the government because of his distaste for military structure and protocols, but by 1862, he accepted an appointment as a colonel and was made Chief of Construction and Transportation in the War Department by Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Haupt excelled in his role overseeing military railroads, though he often bristled at the constant interference of his duties by army officers. While the Battle of Gettysburg raged, Haupt was busy overseeing the reconstruction of railroad connections to Gettysburg. By the end of July 3rd, his railroad construction corps had repaired enough track that supplies could be moved to the town by rail on July 4th. The historian George Edgar Turner opined, quote, It is farther from Baltimore to Gettysburg than from Richmond to Fredericksburg, yet in four days during the heat of desperate battle, Haupt accomplished for Meade what the Confederate organization could not do for Lee in four months of quiet. Haupt went to Gettysburg on the 5th to consult with Meade about where he intended to move the army so he could plan for the supplies to be rerouted by rail. He met with Meade and Alfred Pleasanton, now working as Meade's interim co-chief of staff, sometime in the late morning. They conversed for about an hour or so, mostly about the events of the battle. Finally, around noon, they got down to brass tacks. Haupt recalled, quote, 
I asked General Meade in reference to his future movements so that I could arrange for his supplies, and observed that I supposed he would march at once to the Potomac and cut off Lee's retreat. He replied that he could not start immediately. The men required rest. I ventured to remark that the men had been well supplied with rations, that they had been stationary behind the stone walls during the battle, that they could not be footsore, that the army before and after the battle had been in motion more than our army, that it was but little more than a day's march to the river, and that if advantage were not taking of Lee's present condition, he would escape. To this, General Meade answered that Lee had no pontoon train, and that the river was swollen by rains and was not fordable. I replied, Do not place confidence in that. I have men in my construction corps who could construct bridges in 48 hours sufficient to pass that army, if they have no other material than such as they could gather from old buildings or from the woods, and it is not safe to assume that the enemy cannot do what we can. There was more conversation on the subject. As a classmate of General Meade at West Point, I did not hesitate to express my opinions freely, without fear of offense. I could not, however, remove the idea from General Meade that a period of rest was necessary. I left much discouraged, and as soon as practicable, communicated the situation to General Halleck at Washington, in hopes that something could be done to urge General Meade to more prompt action than he appeared to contemplate. Unquote. So a few things to unpack here. Firstly, it's important to note that Haupt wrote this more than 30 years later. Reminiscences of Herman Haupt was published in 1901, 29 years after Meade's death and 4 years after Pleasanton's death. So when Haupt wrote his memoirs, no one present at the meeting was alive to refute his claims. Secondly, there were several things that he mentioned in his reminiscences that were just patently false. He said that Meade told him that both the water levels of the Potomac were too high to ford, and that Lee's pontoon bridge at Falling Waters was destroyed. Meade almost certainly did not tell him either of these things because he simply did not know this to be the case. He was made aware of the rising water levels around 3 p.m. and the destruction of the pontoon bridge at 7 p.m., hours after the meeting. It's unclear if Haupt was knowingly lying or just misremembering events. If I were going to give him the benefit of the doubt, he wrote his memoirs 35 years after the fact and with hindsight knew that Lee couldn't cross the river, so maybe he unknowingly conflated this. If I'm not assuming that he made these claims in good faith, I'd say that he consciously fabricated the specifics of the conversation to make himself look better. Haupt wouldn't have been the only person to do so. Even Alfred Pleasanton made his own wild post-war claims after Meade's death that he'd urged the general to rush to Williamsport to block Lee from crossing. These small lies, again whether malicious or not, taint the rest of Haupt's post-war claims. Perhaps he did urge Meade to act more quickly. Despite their differences in rank, it wouldn't surprise me if he did speak candidly to the army commander. Again, they were West Point classmates and helped eschewed military hierarchy. Meade, however, was a career army officer and did not seem interested in taking unsolicited advice from an officer of lesser rank. He also seemed not to feel the need to justify his decision to remain at Gettysburg for the time being. As to Haupt's assertions about the readiness of the army and its fighting condition, he clearly did not know what he was talking about. Despite their high spirits and willingness to give the rebels battle again, the Army of the Potomac was worn down. Many were shoeless and were still without food. He made it seem that they were rested and ready to go. Fighting a battle, even if you're a defender, can be exhausting, especially considering that the Army had been on the move for most of the past week or so. And while bad weather did not affect railroads that much, heavy rains would hinder the ability for the troops to march over dirt roads. Haupt left for Washington, dissatisfied with Meade's lack of urgency. We know that upon his return to the Capitol, he had separate meetings with President Lincoln, Secretary Stanton, and General Halleck, where he likely informed them of his lack of confidence in the Army commander's decisiveness. After Harp's departure, Meade continued to plan the next steps. At 12.30, he sent orders to General Warren to hand deliver to General John Sedgwick. The order read, quote, all the information I can obtain proves the withdrawal of the enemy through Cashtown and Fairfield Road. Push forward your column in a westerly direction. Fire on his force. If rear guard, it will be compelled to return. If not, you will find out. Time is of great importance, as I cannot give order for a movement without explicit information from you. Unquote. Sedgwick's Sixth Corps was the largest and the freshest in the army. Like Reynolds on July 1st, Sedgwick was sent to perform a reconnaissance in force essentially a fact-finding mission that involved gunfire. The army commander, however, did not want a large battle to develop. 
He just wanted Sedgwick to learn if Lee was going to make a stand in the mountain passes, or if he was truly retreating to the Potomac. By 11 a.m. on July 5th, all of the Confederate infantry and artillery had withdrawn from their defensive works and were on the move. Ewell's Corps began its march nearly 18 hours after Hill's infantry left. The Fairfield Road, already in poor shape from the bad weather, had degraded precipitously as horses, wagons, cannons, caissons, and tens of thousands of soldiers had marched over it. The Second Corps got mired down and moved at a snail's pace. Early's division was the last in line, with Gordon's brigade, aided by artillery, acting as the rear guard. Their retreat would also be screened by Lieutenant Colonel Elijah V. White's 35th Virginia Cavalry Battalion, a.k.a. the Comanches. After the army pulled up stakes and left Gettysburg, thousands of sick and wounded men, as well as many surgeons and nurses, were left behind. More than 6,700 Confederate soldiers remained in Confederate or Union hospitals in or around Gettysburg. Among the surgeons that stayed was Dr. Simon Baruch, regimental surgeon of the 13th Mississippi of Barksdale's Brigade. Baruch was a 22-year-old German-Jewish immigrant that had settled in South Carolina before the war. He later wrote about his experiences on the morning of the 5th, quote, The morning found us amid novel surroundings. The slightly wounded had been removed, most of them being able to march. The field hospital contained now 222 seriously wounded men, 10 orderlies, and 3 surgeons. The demands of hunger claimed paramount attention, for we had not eaten a meal in three days. A peacock strutting on the meadow was slain and roasted for our breakfast. Within the tavern, which had been hastily abandoned on the approach of the army, cold biscuits, some coffee and sugar, dishes, etc. were found. Table was constructed in the orchard. The surgeons seated themselves to enjoy a feast which the hospital cook had placed steaming upon the table. Here was peace at last. Above our heads, the July sun shone brightly. Birds were twittering in the trees, and fragrant blossoms scented the still air. The calm following the continuous roar of cannon of yesterday seemed uncanny. Never shall I forget the satisfaction with which I raised a knife to carve the novel roast fowl, saying, Here goes. My companions laughed in joyous response. The knife had not touched the fowl when suddenly the scene of content and promised joy was overcast by the clouds of war. A shell flew shrieking over our heads. Its shrill whistling silenced by an explosion in the field nearby. There were an astonished and disappointed trio of doctors. The wounded began to moan, calling us to come to them. A yellow cloth was hastily fastened to the lightning rod of the barn, and we passed among the wounded to reassure them while six shells exploded in uncomfortable proximity. When all was quiet again, we noticed two scouts with field glasses in their hands, dashing away. After the wounded had been quieted, we returned to the deserted breakfast table, consumed the cold food, and discussed the probable cause of the interruption. Happening to observe the hill in front of the orchard, my eyes beheld a novel spectacle. As far as the eye could reach, the summit of the hill was covered by a line of cavalry whose weapons shimmered in the brilliant July sun. The suddenness of their appearance lent awe to the scene. Slowly, the line rode down the hill. Dr. Pierce, the ranking officer, directed me to meet the pickets and to surrender because, he said, you understand these Yankees. I hastily donned my gray coat and green sash and sauntered toward the advancing line, the cavalrymen being about three feet apart. A burly fellow ominously raised his pistol, which I said, I surrender. Where is your commanding officer? In a distinctly Irish brogue, he cried aloud, Say, Cap, here's a Reb wants to see you. The captain galloped to my side, saluted, and asked, Are there many Rebels around? I said, Yes, but they are all wounded. He replied, We'll see to that ourselves. Fall in, men. The bugle sounded and the cavalcade dashed away. After an interval of an hour, the infantry pickets appeared on the hilltop. They formed in the road and were soon followed by the entire Sixth Corps. The yard of the tavern was quickly filled with brilliantly attired staff officers, one of whom I asked for the medical director. He replied politely that he was the adjutant general and would be glad to serve me. I directed his attention to the yellow rag and the lightning rod and said, You fired five shells after the hospital flag was hoisted. He smiled, saying, We did not see that flag. I directed the batteries to feel the way because I saw some scouts on the hill taking observations, and I wanted to dislodge any troops that might have been hidden behind that hill. Passing onto the porch of the tavern, in front of which masses of troops were filing past, I heard good-humored chaffing between the marching soldiers and our nurses. The latter asked, What command is this? We are the chaps that captured Marie's Heights in the Battle of Chancellorsville. Who are you? 
We are the champs that drove you back afterwards at Salem Church. This raillery was followed by laughter on all sides. Unquote. Baruch's hospital was located along the Fairfield Road at Black Horse Tavern. The troops that he interacted with were of Colonel John McIntosh's Cavalry Brigade, as well as Brigadier General Horatio G. Wright's Infantry Division. Horatio Wright was 43 and a native of Connecticut. After attending a private military school in Vermont, he attended West Point and graduated second in the class of 1841. He actually finished ahead of two fellow officers in the Army of the Potomac, the now-dead General John F. Reynolds and a fellow Sixth Corps Division commander, Brigadier General Albion P. Howe. Wright was a career Army engineer, serving from his graduation up until 1862. He briefly served as commander of the Department of the Ohio, but when his promotion to Major General was not confirmed by the Senate, he was named commander of the 1st Division of the 6th Corps, basically his first infantry command in the field. Wright's division, with McIntosh's Cavalry Brigade, led the march of the 6th Corps toward Fairfield. As with the Confederate troops, the Yankees plodded their way down the muddy road. Corporal Henry Kaiser of the 96th Pennsylvania Infantry recorded in his diary, quote, We followed slowly, feeling our way carefully as we went. It rained all afternoon and was very muddy. Every barn we passed was converted into a rebel hospital and had the red flags floating over it. While we were halting near one, a large barn full of wounded rebs, I ran over to see how it looked. It was sickening to look at. The barn floors and every place in the barn where a person could be laid was filled with wounded rebels, and outside the barn on the south side, I seen piles of hands, feet, legs, and arms, at least two feet high. Unquote. On a lighter note, a soldier of the 1st Vermont Brigade recalled having enough time to stop at an apple orchard. Quote, Some of the apples were as large as a hen's egg. We got together as many as our frying pans would hold and fried them with our pork. This made a palatable supper, but it was our last mouthful of rations, and to aid our comfort, it was again raining steadily. Unquote. The Federals slowly closed in on Ewell's rear guard. The two lead divisions of the Confederate Second Corps had passed through Fairfield and had mostly open road ahead of them. Past the town, the road splits around Jack's Mountain. Most of the infantry and all of Harmon's wagon train took the Maria Furnace Road through Fairfield Gap, but Longstreet's 1st Corps took Jack's Mountain Road on the eastern side in order to cut down on road congestion. Nevertheless, Jubal Early's division wagon trains created a traffic jam, blocking the infantry and artillery. Frequent stops allowed for Wright's division to catch up. Around 6 p.m., Lieutenant Colonel Elijah White informed Early that Union skirmishers were just a couple miles east of Fairfield. They reached Granite Hill, where Captain George Adams deployed his Battery G, 1st Rhode Island Light Artillery. In order to buy time, Gordon's brigade, aided by White's Comanches and the Louisiana Guard Artillery, made a show of force. Both sides fired long-range shots, while Wright's skirmishers continued advancing. Adams' battery fired some 163 rounds during the hour-long fight. In a rather bold display, Colonel Edmund Atkinson, commander of the 26th Georgia, ordered his skirmishers to fix bayonets and charge. The ruse actually worked, and the vanguard of Wright's division fell back toward Granite Hill, where they remained. The fight was quick, and casualties were light. Gordon's brigade lost two men killed and 11 wounded or missing. One Union soldier was killed and two were wounded. It was close to 7 p.m., with the sun setting, orders not to bring on a general engagement, and the potential danger of attacking the Confederates in the mountains, Wright was content to just watch Ewell's column slip away toward Fairfield Gap. The Confederates congregated near Monterey Pass, where they bivouacked for the night. Lee had no intention of fortifying the pass indefinitely, but he wouldn't have been upset had Meade tried to attack his army there. The Federal Army commander was interested in no such thing, and was still confused as to Lee's ultimate intentions. Wright's division would continue to confront the Confederate rear guard until they were certain that they had withdrawn from the Monterey Pass. Then Meade could feel confident that he no longer needed to worry about covering Washington and Baltimore, and his army could move toward Middletown. The lack of aggression from the Union Army commander perplexed some. One junior officer opined, quote, I wonder whether we really whipped the Rebs at Gettysburg so very badly after all. If so, I wonder whether our leaders knew it or know it yet. If they do, I have one more wonder. I wonder if Napoleon, or even Robert Lee, were our commander this evening. Would they pursue a defeated army in this cautious, courteous way? Unquote.
Though it was slow going for the main bodies of the respective armies, the cavalry of each force were on the move in multiple directions. Colonel John Irvin Gregg's brigade had been ordered to move toward Cashtown Gap after what turned out to be Imboden's wagon train. Gregg's troopers moved slowly and were unable to affect the Confederate march across South Mountain. The weather conditions slowed their progress and Gregg's command was worn out after weeks of hard marching. A trooper of the 10th New York Cavalry described the rough state, quote, the suffering from hunger was probably never greater in the regiment than while on this march. Men ate corn from the ear, birch bark, anything that would appease the gnawing of hunger. Taking a few men, the regimental commissary started out in search of food. It was an almost hopeless task, as the rebels had made a pretty clean sweep of everything in the line of grain and provisions." Unquote. Along the Chambersburg Pike, they encountered the remnants of a battered army. Private John Sheehan of the 1st Maine Cavalry recalled, quote, we made them leave their caissons and their ambulances, and in many cases they're wounded on the road. They all acknowledge that this is the greatest whipping they ever got, and all the prisoners say they hope it will end the war." Unquote. Including wounded soldiers left behind, stragglers and deserters, Gregg's brigade captured nearly 3,000 prisoners during the pursuit. Irvin Gregg was cautious and did not want to risk a major fight. Between Imboden, Baker, and Fitzhugh Lee, he was outnumbered and isolated. His brigade did catch up with the brigades of Baker and Lee between the small village of Grafenberg Springs and the Caledonia Furnace at South Mountain. It was merely a brisk skirmish with the Confederate rear guard, which resulted in only one Union casualty. Gregg's troopers continued to follow the rear of Imboden's trains, but no other major action occurred. Their pursuit did not slow Imboden's column in any way. Instead of getting much-needed rest or being used for cavalry operations elsewhere, they were essentially wasted during the final phase of the campaign. One major criticism leveled at General Alfred Pleasanton was his handling of the cavalry corps during the Confederate retreat. His decision to spread them out, instead of concentrating them at critical points where they could deal a real blow to the Confederate cavalry, was a real mistake. Pleasanton, who actually turned out to be a rather effective chief of staff for Meade, lacked the skills needed to handle the cavalry. When he micromanaged the corps, he often made poor choices. When he left his division commanders up to their own devices, they probably did a better job, but they weren't able to properly coordinate their actions to maximize their effectiveness. The army commander liked Pleasanton and maintained a good working relationship with him, but the Knight of Romance was simply not suited for the job of cavalry corps commander. Though Colonel Irvin Gregg was unable to mount a successful attack against Imboden, other smaller cavalry detachments and civilians harassed the column. As the wagons rolled through Greencastle, Pennsylvania, emboldened citizens taunted the dejected rebels. David Shook, a local farmer, recalled, quote, We were awakened by a rumbling sound in the direction of Chambersburg. It was the wagon train from Gettysburg. The Teamsters and guards were somewhat excited and were hurrying through. Many of the wagons were loaded with wounded, whose cries and groans were pitiful indeed. We asked the rebels what was up. They told us that a battle had been fought at Gettysburg, but it was not at all decisive. They said too that they were only taking their wounded off and they expected reinforcements from Virginia. They tried to hide their defeat, but we saw that there were more than wounded hurrying towards Virginia. One poor fellow begged to be lifted out of a wagon and laid on the ground as his pain in the jolting wagon was unbearable, but the Teamsters hurried on, giving no heed to his entreaties. The night following being very dark, many persons in town engaged in capturing horses and cattle from the train. As cattle passed by, I saw many turned into alleys. Horses tied behind wagons had their halters cut and were led away unobserved. Many horses too gave out here and were left. They suffered greatly from not being shod, their hoofs being worn off to the quick. Many such were offered for sale, fine ones being offered as low as $5 in Yankee money. I captured a fine bay horse, hit him in the barn, fed him well, and felt proud of my possession. A few days after, a citizen of Greencastle came to the barn, recognized his horse, proved him, and took him away. I did not smile for a week. The rebels had taken this horse on their way to Gettysburg, and I had the luck to get him as my first capture, though I was in utter ignorance of his belonging to a fellow townsman until he informed me. Many persons threw taunts at the retreating foe, such as, How are you in Gettysburg? Have you been to Philadelphia already? And did you meet the Pennsylvania militia down there? An officer rode up to a pump and asked for water. A citizen standing by said, Did you get enough of meat over there? The officer grew furious and called him an impudent puppy. Unquote. 
While the trains passed through, Captain Ulrich Dahlgren and his 100 troopers of the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry waited for an opportune moment to strike the column. When the rebel cavalry and artillery escorts were far enough away, Dahlgren led his horse soldiers in an attack. Captain Frederick Newhall wrote, quote, Dahlgren ordered a charge, to which the party responded with all their might, and in a moment they were in the midst of the wagons banging away and trying to capture the train, unquote. Citizens of Greencastle, led by Thomas Pauling, joined in the attack. Pauling, an ardent Unionist, had previously attacked Confederate wagon trains earlier in the campaign and had freed a number of kidnapped black people. On July 5th, he and his fellow Pennsylvanians, armed with axes, went after the unguarded wagons. They hacked away at the wheels and axles, disabling them in the street. The regimental historian of the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry wrote after the war, quote, with the assistance of citizens, they destroyed 130 wagons and run the horses off to the woods, captured two iron guns and 200 prisoners." Unquote. Their success was short-lived. The closest Confederate cavalry escort was the 18th Virginia, led by Colonel George Imboden, General Imboden's brother. He managed to rally his troopers and ordered a counterattack to drive off the Yankee troopers and recovered what they'd lost. A soldier of the 18th Virginia Cavalry recalled, quote, Federals had cut the train. My company turned back and Company I came forward. We struck the Yankees in both flanks and drove them away, getting back all they had taken, together with some prisoners." Unquote. Dahlgren's bold move had been checked by the larger Confederate force. Captain Newhall of the 6th Pennsylvania wrote, quote, The infantry and cavalry escort was entirely too strong for them, and they were obliged to beat a retreat and finally to scatter to avoid the enemy's close pursuit. Unquote. One Yankee trooper was killed and another 11 were taken prisoner. About 80 or so of Dahlgren's command fled to the southeast. Ultimately, the Confederates recaptured most of the soldiers and both of the guns that the Federals had taken, but the 130 wagons were destroyed by the cavalry and the civilians. The 1st and 3rd Corps wagons continued their trek southward. About 7 miles to the south of Greencastle was a road intersection usually referred to at the time as Cunningham's Crossroads. As the wagon train passed through the crossroads on their way to Williamsport, they were ambushed for the second time. On this occasion, it was a group of roughly 180 troopers of the 12th Pennsylvania and 1st New York Cavalry Regiments, led by Captain Abram Jones. Jones's detachment were members of the debris of Winchester, but they'd rallied in Pennsylvania. Jones and his troopers had actually clashed with Imboden back on June 29th. While Imboden's Northwest Brigade was riding north to meet up with the Army of Northern Virginia, a company of the 18th Virginia headed toward McConnellsburg, Pennsylvania. Jones led an attack on the Virginians, killing two, wounding about a dozen, and capturing many others. Jones had been asked by residents of Mercersburg, Pennsylvania for protection from various Confederate forces marching around the area. He led his group there on the morning of the 5th, but found all to be quiet. After resting his command, he caught word of the 17-mile-long wagon train coming down the Cumberland Valley. His soldiers mounted their horses and rode another 12 miles, crossing the Maryland border and arriving at Cunningham's Crossroads. There, they waited for an opportunity to strike the wagon train. Jones informed his men, quote, If you get into close quarters, use your sabers. Don't strike, but thrust. Unquote. He saw their chance and ordered a mounted charge. The Pennsylvanians and New Yorkers spurred their horses into a gallop and crashed into the unsuspecting train. Jones had caught the rebel wagoners off guard. They were without escort, and most had no choice but to surrender to the Yankee horsemen. It was fairly easy work for them, but before long the Confederate cavalry began to arrive from the north. At this point, the Union horse soldiers had captured over 100 wagons, 300 horses and mules, two 3-inch ordnance rifled guns, and over 600 prisoners, mostly wounded men and teamsters. Quite satisfied with his haul, Jones ordered his men to fall back. He himself had commandeered one of the rebel wagons and asked the captured black teamster, quote, Can you drive that team? The man replied, By golly, you toted me off, and now I tote you off, unquote. And quite willingly, the man drove the wagon and himself off to freedom. Unlike Dahlgren's attack, Jones and his men managed to get away relatively unscathed with most of their captured goods. In spite of the hiccups, Imboden's column continued to trudge along. Losing a couple hundred wagons certainly wasn't positive, but it was a drop in the bucket considering there were thousands in his train. By the evening of the 5th, the column of the wagon train finally reached Williamsport. The arrival of more wagons was certainly not a welcome sight to those who'd been waiting to cross the river on the ferry for most of the day. 
Williamsport was a real mess and growing worse by the hour. When Private Norval Baker of the 18th Virginia Cavalry rode in, he noted the sorry state of the town. Quote, it was an awful place. The dead horses and the awful of the great number of beeves, etc., killed for the army, packed around the little town, made it very unpleasant for us when we returned to camp after night. The green flies were around us all the time, and orders were not to unsaddle or unbridle our horses and be ready for duty all the time. Our blankets were under our saddles and soaked with water, and the green flies were working under the rawhide covering our saddles and the ulcerated backs of our horses. It was rush all the time. When we would go to camp for food and sleep, we would very likely be ordered out on the line again by the news of the outposts being attacked and drove in. And then we would very likely spend the rest of the night looking for a fight." Unquote. The rear of Imboden's wagon train was still some 20-plus miles to the north near New Franklin, Pennsylvania, and it would be many hours before they arrived. But John Imboden now needed to turn his attention to the situation at Williamsport. With the river still too high to be crossed, there were thousands of wagons, wounded soldiers, and livestock crowded near the banks of the Potomac. Unable to cross and vulnerable to attack, he relieved General Grumble Jones of command of Williamsport so he could return to his brigade, and Bowden then went to work organizing a defense of the town. The rest of the Union cavalry was spread out on either side of South Mountain. General John Buford and two of his brigades, those led by Colonels William Gamble and Thomas Devon, had been at Westminster, Maryland since July 3rd, where they rested, resupplied, and guarded the Army's supply depot and reserve trains. On the 4th, Buford received orders to move his division to Frederick, Maryland, about 30 miles southwest. They arrived at Frederick on the 5th, where they joined the reserve brigade of General Wesley Merritt. Buford's division was now at full strength. Save for Merritt's brigade, Buford's command was the freshest of all in the Cavalry Corps, having not seen serious action since the 1st and only minor skirmishing on the 2nd. After passing through Frederick, the three brigades bivouacked on the western side of the city for the night. The next day, they planned to continue their march to Turner's Gap where they'd cross South Mountain. While on the march, General Buford came across the farm of a Pennsylvania Dutchman. The farmer asked the Kentuckian, quote, Are you the general commanding these troops? Buford replied, Yes. The farmer continued, Many of my neighbors are rebels. They say the Union Army is whipped and in full retreat. Some of my neighbors are Union men. They say the rebels' army is whipped and in full retreat. Will you tell me the truth? Buford informed the Dutchman, the rebel army is whipped and in full retreat. We are trying to get to the Potomac ahead of them. The relieved farmer responded, Thank God. I would rather have a country and nothing else than everything my heart could wish for in no country. I have about 30 ton of hay, several thousand bushels of corn not yet shelled, plenty of flour, wheat, and buckwheat, also plenty of cornmeal, unquote. Federals were glad to indulge in the man's generosity. One notable incident occurred near Buford's camp on the night of the 5th. A civilian was observed in and around the Union bivouac site talking to the soldiers. This in and of itself was not terribly unusual. In fact, Buford was annoyed by the presence of private citizens coming through his camp. The cavalry leader was noted as being particularly harsh towards suspected spies, having already hanged a man accused of spying earlier during the campaign. The man milling around the camp began to draw suspicion when he asked too many questions of sensitive nature. The pickets detained the man and searched his belongings. Sewn inside his coat was paper currency of both the United and Confederate States, signed passes from Union and Confederate officers, and drawings of military sites in the Maryland and D.C. area. The man, who called himself Richardson, tried to explain himself, saying that he was from Baltimore and that he had sons in the Confederate Army whom he'd visited. There was some truth to his story. The man was George William Richardson, who was a Baltimore resident with sons in the Army of Northern Virginia. But multiple troopers recognized him as a sutler that had hung around the Union camps before. Richardson was arrested by the provost marshal and brought to General Buford, who took a look at the papers and promptly ordered him to be hanged. The man begged for mercy and pleaded his innocence, but according to one trooper present, quote, Buford never got up from the log, nor stopped smoking his pipe while the man was being executed, unquote. In all likelihood, Richardson was a spy, though I had a difficult time determining the legality of this extrajudicial killing. Hanging spies was a common practice. Earlier in 1863, President Lincoln issued General Orders 100, often referred to as the Lieber Code, which stated in Article 88, quote, A spy is a person who secretly, in disguise or under false pretenses, seeks information with the intention of communicating it to the enemy. 
The spy is punishable with death by hanging by the neck, whether or not he succeed in obtaining the information or in conveying it to the enemy. Unquote. The army was given the ability to try suspected spies through court-martial or military commission, but it wasn't uncommon for spies to be summarily executed. Buford seemed to have a low tolerance for spying and wanted to send a message. After Harrison had died, a note was penned to his coat that read, quote, Hanged as a spy. The man who cuts him down will take his place. Unquote. His body hung from a tree on the side of the road for several days afterward. Once the Union troopers were long gone, locals cut him down, and he was buried at the spot of his execution. Earlier that morning, the troopers of Judson Kilpatrick's division went through the wagons they'd captured during the midnight fight at Monterey Pass. A Wolverine of Custer's Michigan Brigade remembered, quote, Some wagons were loaded with coffee, ladies' shoes, teas, calicos, and all such goods as a country store would have for sale, unquote. Charles Blinn of the 1st Vermont Cavalry added, quote, Many of the boys procured a good suit of new clothes from the train, unquote. The horse soldiers were awed by how much the Confederates had plundered from Maryland and Pennsylvania over the past couple of weeks. They were, however, happy to pick through the stolen goods. After they'd taken what they needed, the wagons were burned, and the three brigades moved to Smithsburg, Maryland, about 10 miles to the southwest. E.A. Paul, a New York Times war correspondent, described the warm welcome they received. Quote, Smithsburg was reached by 9 o'clock a.m. The reception met with there made all forget the trials of the night, made them forget even their fatigue. It was Sunday. The sun shone forth brightly. Young misses lined the street side singing patriotic songs. The general was showered with flowers, and the general and the troops were cheered until re-echoed by the mountainsides. Young ladies and matrons assailed the column with words of welcome, and large plates heaped with pyramids of white bread spread with jelly and butter, inviting all to partake. While the young sang, the old shed tears and wrung the hands of those next to them. The little town was overflowing with patriotism and thankfulness at the arrival of their preservers. While these things were detaining the column, the band struck up Hail Columbia, followed by the Star-Spangled Banner." Unquote. On the other side of the mountain, Jeb Stuart was riding with his two brigades, Colonel John R. Chambliss's and Milton Ferguson's. They were to act as a screen for the Army's left wing as it retreated. First, they headed to Emmitsburg, where Stuart interrogated several Union prisoners that they'd captured. The rebels also briefly detained photographer Alexander Gardner and two assistants, Timothy O'Sullivan and James Gibson. Gardner was one of several photographers en route to the battlefield to document the aftermath. Once the Confederate cavalry moved out of town, Gardner's team was released and they proceeded to Gettysburg. Stewart's two brigades rode for Smithsburg via the Raven Rocks Gap. Judson Kilpatrick planned for this. He sent skirmishers forward toward the pass and deployed his horse artillery on high ground east of Smithsburg. As the Confederate cavalrymen approached the western side of South Mountain, they dismounted and advanced on foot, driving the Union skirmishers back. As they came through the pass, they reached a fork in the road. Stuart decided to split his force, with Colonel Ferguson leading his brigade down the left fork and Stuart with Chambliss's brigade going to the right. At this time, it was about 5 p.m. Union guns of Pennington's, Fuller's, and Elder's batteries of horse artillery opened fire on the dismounted troopers, but they failed to cause much damage. Ferguson's men pressed forward against the brigades of Colonels Nathaniel Richmond and Pennock Huey, while Chambliss's Virginia cavalrymen moved around the Federal left flank. Meanwhile, Stewart had Griffin's Maryland battery of horse artillery on limber. They opened up a counter-battery fire, which ultimately caused more damage to the houses in Smithsburg than it did to the Yankee guns. After about an hour of this artillery duel with light skirmishing from the dismounted cavalry, Kilpatrick ordered his three brigades to mount up and fall back. His division then rode to Boonesboro, about 12 miles to the south, which it reached around midnight. Not long after Kilpatrick reached Boonesboro, he was joined by General John Buford and his staff. The two cavalry generals discussed the operations of the past few days and devised a plan for July 6. It was decided that both divisions would ride westward, with Kilpatrick's command heading for Hagerstown and Buford's for Williamsport. I'll talk more about this on the next episode. After their meeting, Buford rode back to Frederick, and Kilpatrick settled in Boonesboro for the night. Meanwhile, back in Smithsburg, Stuart's horsemen rode into town where he picked up some information from the locals. Quote, I was told by a citizen that the party I had just attacked was the cavalry of Kilpatrick, who had claimed to have captured several thousand prisoners and 400 or 500 wagons from our forces near Monterey. 
but I was further informed that not more than 40 wagons accompanied them, and other facts I heard led me to believe the success was far overrated. About this time, Captain Emac, Maryland Cavalry, with his arm in a sling, came to us and reported that he had been in the fight of the night before, and partially confirmed the statement of the citizen, and informed me, to my surprise, that a large portion of Ewell's corps trains had preceded the army through the mountains. Unquote. Captain George Emac had survived the fight at Monterey Pass, though he sustained multiple wounds. After a brief stop in Smithsburg, Stuart led his two brigades to Leitersburg, about four miles to the northwest. There, he sent a courier to General Lee with information about both the Federal Cavalry and his own whereabouts, and his intentions for the next day. The Beauceber had quite a day in store for him on July 6. Six brigades of Union Cavalry were about to move toward Hagerstown and Williamsport. The former was an important road hub. Any Confederate force heading to Williamsport would have to pass through Hagerstown. If the route was blocked, they'd have to force their way through to the Potomac. A significant delay could prove to be costly to the Army of Northern Virginia, if not fatal. The protection of the wagon trains at Williamsport was also of utmost importance. On the evening of the 5th, General John and Bowden had around 2,000 men and two dozen guns to protect the town from attack. He desperately needed more help to hold off the larger Union force that was bearing down on them. And that's where I'm going to leave off for today. On the next episode, I'll cover the movements of both the Confederate and Union armies as they move southward toward the Potomac, as well as the twin battles of Hagerstown and Williamsport on July 6. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History.